gosh. It is exciting. We are live, y'all. Yes. We actually are live. We are live. Hey, we live. Okay. <laughs> I think it's just a, a shock that we're actually here right now. Um, right, right. Work. So I'll get us started. I am Tasha Roberson Wing. Hello, I am Angela Quijada Banks. Nice to be here and in community with all these amazing, beautiful women. Yes. Hello, everyone. My name is Amani Loren Myers. Hi, everyone. I'm Alexandria Ware. Okay. And of course, I'm having technology issues. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened. But hello, everyone. My name is uh, Casey Getty, and I have uh, she, her pronouns. Yes. And we are so excited to be here. We are the members of the Diaries of a Black Girl in Foster Care podcast. So you'll be hearing a lot from us. And um, we are really excited. I think this kind of just started as something we talked about. And now actually seeing this vision come to life, it's like, wow like we're really here and so what kind of got us here in this space is the intersectionality of being like black and a young woman poses like unique unique problems um for black girls in foster care and so pretty much this podcast is a series that addresses current racial issues disparities stereotypes um that aid and poor outcomes for black girls who have experienced foster care and so I guess I can give you the background story of how we came to be. And simply um, for me, this past summer, I focused a lot on just disparities of Black girls within the foster care system. And I had the opportunity to participate in the CCAI um, foster youth intern where we had to come up with different policy concerns. And I definitely focused on the tragedy that had taken place with Micaiah Bryant. And so... I remember um, having to do our final remarks and I was talking to one of my girlfriends just like, I do not know like what to say or what to do, but I just know that I want to um, make sure that this conversation continues. And I want to make sure that Micaiah Bryant's name is not in vain or her death is not in vain. And she um, said something to me. She was like, why do you keep focusing on death? We should be focusing on her spirit and let her spirit live on. And so I, I stand before you today, honestly, this is just the the spirit of Micaiah Bryant is leading on and making sure that we create critical um, change within the child welfare system that is is needed. And so that's honestly what brought me to the work and what has um, been the foundation for Diaries of a Black Girl in Foster Care. Anula, you want to talk about what brought you to the work? Yeah. Um... Well, when you all um, asked me to be a part of this, I felt like um, it was a no-brainer because also thinking about my experience, several other um, amazing young women of color and Black, black youth um, experiences, I knew that we definitely needed to elevate it. When we think about the foster care system, even though a lot of people don't want to address <laughs> Black and, and race and those different aspects of it, um, we are disproportionately, our families and, 
and us are we are disproportionately uh, made up of this system so therefore we should talk about <laughs> those experiences so i was very honored um to be approached with this and um I'm just excited to be a part of this conversation and to really shed the light on things that happen to uh, youth like Akaya Bryant and um, how we can really begin to prevent those types of tragedies um, in our communities moving forward. Yes, thank you. <clears throat> just uh, by what uh, both of you all have said, I definitely uh, would agree with sort of what has inspired and brought me to the work has been you know, my own experience of growing up in the foster care system and just seeing myself as someone who could have been Micaiah Bryant. I remember when, you know, I was in high school and, you know, got into a fight and uh, pushed a white teacher in the midst of it and got sent to an alternative school uh, for that and was about to be expelled. But, you know, thankfully, you know, someone saw um, and heard about, you know, the experiences that I experienced as, you know, a young Black girl in the foster care system. And to know that someone took that chance on me, which shouldn't have been a chance in general, you know, uh, we all we all make mistakes and we all deserve to, you know, benefit from being able to uh, have second chances. And so being able to have uh, second and third chances in my life, uh, which have not always been easy, is what uh, really has uh, spotlighted me to really hone in on this work. Uh, but more importantly, you know, uh, recently losing a sister to suicide uh, was something that really reignited my mission and my drive uh, to want to really work in this field because, you know, my sister should be here as a young black girl uh, who should have had a chance. And because of her experiences in the foster care system, because of the things that she experienced, she didn't get it to have a chance to be able to live out her dreams. And so for me, uh, my goal is to be able to uh, live out her legacy and to uh, share her legacy with the world um, and in doing so with people that I'm inspired by. And so to be able to have been asked to be able to join uh, all these beautiful uh, women and their journeys and hearing about uh, just the, av the advocacy that they've all done it's something that I uh, also really wanted to be a part of. And I'm just really glad to be here with all of you all. Thank you. Yeah, so for me, um, Tasha and I had a conversation and she was like, I wanna do this. And I was like, okay. And then I texted her one day and I was like, are you, did you really wanna do this? Because if you really wanna do this, I'm down. So I kind of like, pushed her into doing it. Um, and so then it's just amazing to see how it's come. And so for me, just growing up in Kansas in a lot major, a lot of majority of white foster homes and having to find my Blackness, going through transracial adoption and not having those parents to talk about like when things happen to me in foster care and how did, you know, I learn how to do my hair and just so many things that you go through as a young Black girl in foster care that you sometimes don't have anyone to turn to or you don't know what to do. Um, and so I'm super excited to be along everyone here. And I'm so excited that Tashay approached me with this idea and she let me kind of be like, yes, let's do it. We can do this um, because it's needed. And it's a conversation that if we didn't have it, then who was going to, and it needs to happen now so we can shed some light on the things that happen.
Yes. Well, thank you, Alex. And um, I will definitely say like when I was asked to be a part of the podcast, I was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, I was like this is a definite yes um, for multiple reasons. One, um, definitely because of what happened to Micaiah Bryant. Um, you know, I was really affected by it, considering the fact that I was that that young girl in foster care, um, that young black girl in foster care, uh, very like I entered foster care at the age of 14. So I was in foster care at the same time and the same age that she was. And, you know, I remember getting into fights, um, but the police were never called. The police were never called. And the situation was always de-escalated either whether it was by a neighbor, whether it happened in school and it was de-escalated by a teacher or it happened in a group home that I was in. Like we had staff to de-escalate situations like this. And I just think about like, wow, like what if somebody actually just tried to de-escalate the situation and nobody did not? I mean, I know she had called the police, but even like what if the police officer had just tried to de-escalate the situation? Like I know even as a social worker, I've worked in group homes and in spaces and um, had to break up fights, but we weren't calling the police and no guns were being drawn. So like it just it just really, um, really affected me. And I just thought about who I was back then as that lost, very frustrated, angry um, at the world, young girl in foster care. And just, you know, very grateful to still have my life, um, you know, and be able to have a platform like this. So I definitely was like, yes. And to also be a part of something great with these beautiful women on here um, as well. That's, that was a yes. And then the other thing was, you know, just bringing awareness and us having platforms in child welfare. We all know that, you know, to have a platform to be black and have a child well and have a platform in child welfare is very important because we all know a lot of child welfare agencies are ran by white women um, and we are not seen in these spaces. So to be able to have this platform and have ourselves be seen um, is, is very important. And can I also add one of the reasons that I was so adamant inviting everybody because everybody like has their own kind of like unique things that they're doing in their everyday lives. And I just thought it was so important to bring um, different perspectives of the black experience like it's not like every black person is not the same as we know. And though we all have lived experience within the foster care system, our like our experiences is much so different. And so like for me, I grew up in the Indiana foster care system and we've all experienced foster care system within different states. So it was important to get different perspectives here today. And if y'all don't mind, I want to take like I just want y'all to go around and just say some of the things that y'all are doing. Like y'all are phenomenal women and I just want to uplift the um, different things that y'all are doing in y'all everyday lives like we got authors we got entrepreneurs like business owners up in here <laughs> don't forget to uplift yourself and the things that you are doing too yes yes <laughs> yeah so you going first right yeah, so, <laughs> right now um I am finishing up my master's in social work and master's of public administration. At yes, the welcome to the club. So I am 
I'm just hoping to be done in May. I'm going to change that. I will be done in May. I will, Ooh, be, done. Yes. will be done in May. That's the way okay. <laughs> into existence. Yes. <laughs> All right. Was that okay? Yes. Um, well, um, I published my book in 2020, The Black Foster Youth Handbook, 50 Plus Lessons I Learned to Successfully Age Out of Foster Care and Holistically Heal. Didn't realize how long that uh, subtitle was until I just said it right now. <laughs> um, I From there, I started um, the Soulful Liberation Movement, Liberation of Self and Community, um, which has evolved into a company um, providing holistic health coach, coaching, programming, consulting, workshops, and trainings. Um, yeah, it's been an amazing journey thus far, and I'm honored to be here with you all. And thank you, Tasha, for the space to share that. <laughs> yes, I needed you too. <laughs> yeah, and uh, following behind my sister, I just uh, published my first book, uh, memoir titled you are the prize seeing yourself beyond the imperfections of your trauma. I am a motivational speaker and a consultant. And um, yeah, just working to sort of uplift this work so that um, you know other young people and people who've experienced similar things to us know that they themselves are the prize. You can find my book on Amazon and good uh, in Kobo. And um, so yeah, and there's more to come. And also grab yourself a copy of You Are the Prize. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and Angela's book too. And workbook. Alex, I think you muted. Sorry, my mouse was acting weird. Didn't want to work, you know, technology. Um, so currently I work in 4-H Youth Development. So I do all things like helping youth find their spark. Um, but on the side, I own a consulting business. We're consulting. Make sure you follow us on IG, Facebook, all those good things. So we provide educational consulting, coaching and mentoring, trainings and workshops. Um, and then I am in the process of opening a transitional living here in Wichita, Kansas, um, for our alumni who have aged out of the system. Because um, as we know, those youth have a lot of homelessness going on. And so really providing a space for them to heal. Um, and just be their authentic self and being able to work on that. So make sure you also follow Culture Creations um, because we are trying to be out here helping these young people create some culture and healing. Um, and besides that, I just, you know, hang out with my girls. So we do podcasts and <laughs> we just we just have fun, you know, and live life. So, yes. Thank you. Yes. Um, and so I am a national uh, child welfare expert and consultant. I currently work at the Center for the Study of Social Policy, um, working on the Youth Thrive Initiative as their senior program analyst. Thank y'all. And um, I also am owner of So Educated, which is a LLC that provides- Yes! <laughs> I should have <wore> mine. <laughs> That provides uh, blue stoles, um, those things that you wear around your neck, because some people get confused, but uh, they are blue stoles that um, are given to not only young people, but adults as well who have aged out of foster care to help not only celebrate their achievement, because it is an achievement, um, 
but also to bring awareness to the less than uh, 3% of people who age out of foster care that are graduating with their four-year degree. So you can follow us on Instagram at so underscore educated. Um, and then also in my spare time, and they're, going, they're probably going to uh, laugh at me, but in my spare time, I like to craft. I am owner of K of All Traits, uh, where I do DIY projects and I create content. And you can follow me on TikTok and on Instagram as well. And yeah, I'm just here as a co-host of this uh, amazing podcast that we're launching today. So with these beautiful queens. Yes. Thank y'all for sharing. So now we're going to shift over to the the bulk, the juice of our conversation today. And um, before I start, it is so easy to come on here and talk about Black girls in foster care from a deficit lens. And when I was thinking about like, when it comes to change what side I wanted to be on, I did not want to be on the side of presenting and talking about girl, Black girls from a deficit. So as we talk today, we're going to be talking about like what it means to to have safety, but also what it means like to have protective factors. Like we all know, well, I'm not going to say we all know, but uh, when it comes to Black girls in society, it has definitely been some research that showed that Black girls are seen as needing less nurturing, less protection, less support, um, the less need to be comfort, and they're seen as more independent and less innocent as their white counterparts. And today, we just want to take the time to uplift Black girls and show that really in America, it is really a privilege to be innocent. And so um, today, I just want to shape our conversation about our experience um, being in foster care and what it meant to be safe. It also protective factors that, you know, caseworkers and those working in the child welfare system, what they can be looking for to help um, nurture our Black girls throughout the system and so that we can have these better outcomes. And so my first question for the group is, how do you define safety within child welfare? And if you can recall just your experience, what does safety look like? And so we can start anywhere on this one. I wasn't sure if Lonnie was going or not. Um, so I can start. So I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> so I can start, you know, as I was thinking about, you know, the podcast today and um, the questions around what I, I started to ask myself, what did safety look like for me when I was in foster care? Um, and to be quite honest with y'all, like safety for me was either school or um, it was either work. Like I recall a time where I didn't even have to work that day, but I left my foster home acting like I was going to work and I wasn't even on the shift. Um, and I just sat there like as if I was at work all day, just chilling with my coworkers. And at the time I was working at McDonald's, um, but I was sitting there chilling with my coworkers all day until like I had to go back to the foster home because I did not feel um, safe there at all. Like I just did not feel heard or anything like that. Um, and like, I would miss the days like when we didn't have have school, like I would be upset that we, we would have a holiday um, because I really, 
like found like those hours spent at school were like the safe hours and I would find things to do after school. I was always like trying to be in a sport so I could stay longer um, because it was a distraction. Um, mm -hmm. It was a distraction for me and it was like my safe haven um, because I did not have to be in a toxic environment because a lot of my um, foster homes at the time were toxic and they weren't helpful. And, you know, there were only a few workers that I can remember. And quite frankly, they were the transport workers that would take me to my visits to um, see my parents um, that where I could have honest conversations with them and tell them what was going on in, in, in the foster homes and stuff like that. And they would be like, well, why don't you tell your worker? And I'm like, because they don't listen. Mm -hmm. um, and they're like, oh, well, you know, it's going to be okay and stuff like that. And they, they always did encourage me. And, you know, I'm still in contact with a few of them till this day. And, you know, but it was though, I just remember that's where safety was for me and what that, what it looked like for me in foster care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting uh, just to also comment on the collective mm-hmms because it, <laughs> you know, it reaffirms and it validates, uh, you know, your experiences. Because I think that many times when we've gone through difficult things, you know, many of our experiences have been minimized. And so um, as you were speaking, uh, Casey, uh, and talking about, you know, you found safety outside of your um, outside of your foster home. You know, for me, I think about um, just the different experiences I had in care. So. I uh, grew up in kinship care first, uh, where I grew up with my great aunt and my three other siblings. And then I moved with my mom for two years. And then I went into foster care at the age of 12 and then aged out. And um, I remember, uh, you know, the first time for me feeling safe was with my siblings. You know, there were three of us. And from the very uh, beginning, we talked about, you know, creating a pact uh, with each other, you know, mm -hmm. and I think that even though we have been experiencing some really difficult and hard things, I think there is um, some sort of comfort in going through a struggle together uh, because you know you're not alone and you know that uh, what you're experiencing is real. And even though we were trying to navigate how to come from under that, you know, it was really difficult because as kids, you know, one of the things that I think that tends to get minimized are our voices. And so we're not being listened to. And so you even mentioned that, you know, you tell the social worker and the social worker isn't, you know, really um, on your side as they're supposed to be. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't feel safe. And so when I got separated from my siblings, um, who were the two most important people at that time where I felt safe and to be removed from that? I think that was really difficult. And so the other thing that I had growing up when I was growing up with my great aunt was the church. And even though I was, you know, I was that kid that wasn't really, you know, into church or wasn't really, um, I was really involved, but I couldn't always connect. But the thing that I could connect with was community. And so being able to connect with the community there was something that was a safe haven for me. So even after school, you know, even if, you know, there wasn't a church service going on, my aunt worked at the church as a secretary and I just hang out at the church with her. I'd hang out there, you know, cause I knew that there would be food. I knew that there would be community and I knew that I would feel safe. And so I think that many of these times when we talk about safety, oftentimes we think about it in the realm of what does it mean to feel physically safe? As much as you need to feel physically safe, you need to also feel emotionally safe. You need to feel spiritually safe. You need to feel all types of safety. And so being able to experience that um, in my uh, group of siblings was 
something that I, I will continually to cherish. And I think it's really helped me um, understand safety. But at the same time, I did not always feel safe. And I think that that's where a lot of, uh, you know, my anxiety today stems from is even though I may still, even though I may be safe, um, it still doesn't always feel safe. And so I have to remind myself that I'm safe. Yeah. And if I can just add on that really quick, I think two important concepts that came up was um, not just thinking of safety within the physical realm, but also like school. I think for me, that was a safe haven for me. Definitely school in church, because I feel like everybody's going to be on their best behavior at church. Cause you guys, when I thought about like safety and especially in my time in care, I don't know if I've ever truly felt safe. I think being honest, like I am a big presenting black girl and the fear of those feeling intimidated by me, like it has always been something that was in the back of my mind that did not allow me to put my barriers down to feel safe. And so I just wanted to echo the education system as a safe haven. I think for me, um, similar to what Amani was saying about siblings, um, my siblings prior to being into foster care were definitely my place of refuge and extremely um, an extreme survival tool, I think, in itself, like being able to bond together and go through the crazy, horrific situations together and um, I was placed into kinship care originally, and um, it didn't work out. So we ended up having to be separated. And um, that was really, really difficult because we already collectively didn't feel safe. And I definitely agree with you, Tasha. I, I never felt safe in um, the child welfare system. But at least I had my siblings until I didn't. And everything just kind of felt um, overwhelming. Um more overwhelming than it already was. Um, another thing that was a great, I guess, safety thing for me was having connection to social media. So like actually having a phone. Um, mm -hmm. And I know a lot of youth are not allowed to have a phone and, you know, there's all these other stipulations and reasons of why people find ways to take the phone. Um, but honestly, that was a really huge lifeline for me to be able to connect with other people online, connect with my uh, birth family um, as much as I could. Um, there was always reasons why my phone was confiscated, like literally at least 10 times out of the week. Um, so that was very frustrating. And also at, in the time when I finally, um, so I signed myself back into the system at 18 and I actually was not able to age out. I was forcibly uh, kicked out because I was reporting an unsafe placement mm -hmm. um, where uh, people were coming in and out of, well, men were coming in and out of the foster home because I'm not really sure <laughs> what was going on with my foster parent. Um, I don't know if she had like a midlife crisis or what was going on, but she was dating pretty heavily. And no judgment there, but I was in college trying to, you know, continue moving forward in my journey. And there were a lot of things that were going on that um, made me not feel safe. And so I was trying to communicate that with a case manager. Um, my social worker was not 
involved at the time. Um, she actually had retired after getting into a car accident with my brother when we were on our way, on our way to a sibling visit. So she just decided to retire that day. So I didn't have a social worker and I didn't have a um, garden, guardian ad litem, also called a CASA in different states. Um, she was removed from my case a year prior because um, I was in between placements at the time and my guardian ad litem didn't agree with my social worker who said that I should spend the night at a um, airport over the weekend. Um, and so my guardian ad litem was like, absolutely not. You're going to be staying at my house, even though that was completely against the rules. And so um, my social worker didn't like that and made sure to report her. And um, that particular agency that she was with told her she needed to be removed from the case. So she just kind of stepped down altogether. Um, so no, I've, I've never felt safe. And even all the way to the end of when um, I got that seven day notice, because simply trying to explain to someone that I didn't feel safe and it escalated to, why are you telling people, you know, what's going on in my house and um, all these things. And I didn't want anything bad to happen to the foster parent, but I also wanted to feel safe. I wanted to continue on my own goals and dreams and be able to see my siblings. And I didn't want to be put in a not great situation. Um, and, you know, me and my foster parent, I don't think we were aligned in our goals and morals and other things. Um, cause she would offer me to like drink alcohol. And I was like 19, um, all kinds of stuff. Um, all kinds of stuff. So excuse my Facebook. <laughs> all kinds of things. So Things I was just like, you know, I don't think this is the best place for me. I, I really think that I could be served better in another place. Um, so safety, like for me, really looked like my siblings and really looked like at least connection to the internet, connection to my birth family, which ironically the system said wasn't um, fit to take care of me. Thank you. Yeah, safety for me was my older brother in the education. So I, I was considered like a bad kid in foster care. I acted up all the time. I'll admit it. I gave my social worker and foster parents a lot of grief. I'm not afraid to admit that. But when my judge decided to split me and my brother up like that, that hurt us both for a long time because my brother, him being older, he's the older one, as we know, in Black families you're the oldest kid, you're supposed to protect the younger kids. So that he like took that seriously. Like it was his his life goal, it was his mission. I mean, even to this day, he's 30, I'm 29. He'd still be like, oh, you can't do this. You can't act like this. Like I need to protect you. And I'd be like, I'm grown, mind your business. Like, but it was in one foster home we were in together where me and my, me and my brother made a pact. We, we made a pact that if we ever found our biological family and they were like nuts and cuckoo, we would always be me and him against the world. Um, and we still have that pack to this day. I mean, my brother is, he gets on my nerves, but he's probably one of my favorite people. Like I just, he just came over this weekend and I was like, here, have all these dishes I don't need. And he was like, thanks. Now I don't have to buy more stuff for my house. And I was like, perfect. Um, but once I lost him, I really relied on education. So I would get in trouble with school, but it was because I was so smart and I would get bored. And then I'd be like, let me just get in trouble because I would go sit in the principal's office and the principal would be like, why are you getting in trouble? I know you're only getting in trouble because you're bored in class. Why don't you just tell people that? I'm like, 
tell people that. We don't talk about my feelings where I'm from. Like we don't we don't do that, buddy. Like I get in trouble. You tell me you're gonna have ISS or you're gonna go back to class and you're gonna act right and let's not do this again. Then we would do it again. And I'd be like, listen, sir, this is a game to me. Like I feel safe here. I want you to put me in ISS or give me after school detention. I don't have to go home to foster homes. And even though I had an amazing foster home in my, my teenage years, it was really when I was a kid where I was like, Ooh, you want me to be with these random people and my brother's not here to protect me. And I didn't realize that until I started going to therapy and just talking about the things that I've been through that like, in care, like once I lost my brother, I was like, oh, so y'all just expect me to protect myself. I'm a kid, I'm, I'm a girl. I, I can't be safe in these homes by myself. But then also for most of my life, I was always big. So I always had to have that front of nothing was wrong with me. You couldn't mess with me. I already knew people were intimidated by me. So I also had to put that on so then I could feel safe. So if someone would try and hug me, I'd be like, man, don't touch me. You don't know me. Because as a bigger person, I already knew like people were already scared of me. So why not use that to my advantage, um, which helped me be safe, which is crazy for some people. Because as you said, Tasha, like it was like you already knew people were going to be intimidated by you. It was like I was using it to keep me away from people, to not let anyone in emotionally, physically or whatever. So then that way people didn't have to I didn't have to worry about anybody trying to get close to me. Um, but now as an adult. I feel like my safety is peace. Uh, I don't mm. deal with nobody who, who causes, if you take away my peace, you gotta go. You, you gotta go. Um, and I think it's a big change from where I came from is like, if you're not peaceful, you're not bringing that peace to my life. I don't wanna be around you. Wow. Woo, girl, that was good. <laughs> it sounds like what we're hearing is a big part of safety is that sibling connection and it really made when y'all were talking about like just like the older siblings it made me think about my siblings because i'm actually like the oldest of nine siblings and going into care i definitely was like ready to bump with anybody that was gonna mess with my sister erica if you on this call girl you know i'm going to bat for you girl <laughs> but um I wonder, because it was a time where me and my sister actually got split up. I ended up running away because, once again, I did not feel safe. And I just took a, ran, a run for it. So I'm like a 14-year-old out here in the streets of Indianapolis just looking for that safe haven. And when you were saying, like, being split up from your brother and not having that protection, it just made me think about, like, wow, like, how did my sister feel um, and little sisters feel like when I wasn't there? Did they feel protected? So that may be like some healing things that me and my siblings have to talk about because I never looked at it from that perspective. So definitely thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say that, Hegia uh, and uh, Alexandria, because, um, you know, that was something that, like, my, when we first got separated, my brother and I were placed together and my little sister was not. And um, this is something that we, I mean, even just the fact of us, excuse me, even just for the fact of us finding out that, you know, we were not going to be together. We found out when we went into, when we went into our first foster home and mm. she was dropping us off and we found out that my little sister wasn't going to be joining us. And 
it wasn't until years later. I mean, I was always I was always sad to not have my little sister uh, with us. It was something I just never understood why she was separated from us. And um, you know, and thinking back, you know, she had um, you know a lot of behavioral issues that she struggled with, and so she ended up grow- going into group homes. Versus my brother and I stayed in uh, like a foster family, and and then I got separated from my brother um, a little later on. But one of the things that you bring up is something that she brought up. Um, you know, a few years uh, before she passed away, uh, she had she was very angry. Uh, the fact that she didn't feel protected by us um, for like, she felt like we should have, I think she felt like she was upset that she didn't get to stay with us. And it Mm -hmm. wasn't something that I couldn't even process, you know, when you first go into foster care, um, because it's not something that you think about. You're just thinking about why isn't this person here with you? But she was, she, I think in a lot of ways felt like an outsider as to why she wasn't, uh, you know, placed with us. And, and then at the same time, as soon as we went into foster care, you know, my mother uh, got pregnant and um, had my little brother. And so she got to keep him. And so I think that uh, there's all sorts of dynamics that are at play when we separate families that I feel that a lot of uh, child welfare people don't even recognize or, or understand. And so when you talk about that, that healing aspect of your siblings, I definitely think you should you know, talk with them and get their perspective. But I don't think it's a place for you to blame yourself because like you said, you yourself didn't feel safe. And I think oftentimes we tend to blame the wrong kind of people. I think we need to blame the system for the decisions that they have made. And something that Angela said earlier um, that I could definitely relate to is, you know, I couldn't understand why was it that I was being separated from my mother, but then to go into foster homes where they weren't safe or they felt uh, a little worse off than where I was living before. And so I definitely think that there is a lot of uh, healing, a lot of uh, accountability, um, a lot of um, just recognition of these experiences, especially as we all go through our own uh, healing uh, modalities to figure out sort of who we are today. And our siblings are, are the ones that have, in a lot of ways, have uh, created who we are. And to be separated from that, I would say, is a really difficult thing. Yeah, yeah. I was wanted to jump in here as well because I, it was interesting to hear all of your perspectives. Because um, when I entered foster care, I actually was separated from um, my siblings as well. Um, we never actually, I, matter of fact, I never actually lived with them ever again. Um, when we entered foster care, that was like the last time that I ever lived with them. Um, and my three youngest siblings wound up getting, um, adopt, readopted, um, after we had entered care. And then my older sibling, you know, she kind of went off and did her own thing because we were the two oldest. And so we just kind of lingered in foster care until we aged out. Um, but we never, that, that really, damage the relationships that we have now we like you Tasha we have some work to do um we have a lot of work to do um but you know it just 
and just to see where all of us have ended up in life is just really interesting. And I just wonder, you know, what life would have been like had um, we had all been placed together. Um, you know, that's one of the things um, with the child welfare system. I have four siblings um, and nobody is taking five kids. No foster home is taking five kids in. So, um we all wound up getting split up, except for my two youngest siblings. They actually wound up going to, um, or they weren't placed in the same foster home at the first time, but um, they wound up being together in the end. Um, mm -hmm. And so, like, obviously their relationship is a lot different than my relationship with them. And I wound up not being able to, because they were uh, adopted, um, that cut off all types of sibling connection. Because once you're adopted, you don't have to, um, the adoptive parents can restrict you from having any communication with anyone prior to your adoption. Um, and so that's kind of just what happened. And we all kind of found each other later on in life when we became uh, adults, when everybody became adults. But, you know, the relationship looks very different now. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And so... I'm just going to let this conversation flow. So now y'all got me kind of jumping around here because it's really good. And so as we talked about safety and what it meant to, you know, feel safe, like when you were in care, did you ever feel empowered? And what did um, that look like? I can start this one off. So I would say I felt empowered when I told my judge that I wanted to find my my older sister um, and talk to my siblings again. I told them that I wasn't going to work my case plan till they found my siblings. And I tell my my nieces and nephews, my family this all the time. I'm thankful for my brother-in-law's brother who was in juvie the day before me, um, because that's what started the process of us finding each other. So a guard recognized my face and was like, wasn't your sister just here? And if she's watching, she knows this story. But I was like, uh, no, I ain't got no sister. I know her name, but she don't mess with me. I don't mess with her. I don't know her like that. And so I told him her name and he was like, nah, she was here yesterday. Like, I, I know she was. And I was like, well, that doesn't mean she's my sister just because she was here. Like, for me, it was like, I don't know her because the last time I seen her, I was so young. But it was one of those things where Ultimately, me and my brother had to have a conversation, our worker said, of was he okay with us finding our, our biological family and our sister? Because our judge didn't want to do anything that I just wanted to do that he didn't want to do. Um, because, again, he was that protective force. So he was like, well, I guess if you want to find them, then I can get on board. You know, I'll be behind you. And so it really empowered me to know, like, my judge listens to me. I told her, I'm not doing this until you find this. Because this is what I need. This is what I need to succeed. This is what I need to know where I came from. And her allowing me to be empowered. And I mean, I know the group home was probably like, this girl is crazy. Like, she thinks she's really about to find them. And I remember I was in the nurse's office and my case manager, who I had from the time I entered care to the time I exited care, called and was like, hey, I have somebody here who wants to talk to you. And I was like, okay. And she, my sister said, hey, sissy. I said, I don't know who that is because I didn't recognize her voice because it had been so long. Mm. And she was like, that's your sister. I said, that's not my sister. I was like, stop playing because y'all did not find my sister that fast. And so I was like, if she's my sister, then I'm really about to quiz you. So I quizzed my older sister. I asked her when I was born, where I was born, where was the, the scar on my foot, what toe it was on, how it happened. 
And I was like, if she can get all these right, then there's a big chance she's my sister. And when she got them all right, I was like, oh, like for real, for real, she's like, this is my older sister. She was like, I don't know why you quizzing me. I am your sister. I said, well, I don't know that. How am I supposed to trust the state that they found the person who is my sister? And once, I mean, our sibling relationship, just like everyone else's, has work to do um, because we didn't grow up together. But it was that moment I knew that I could tell my judge I wanted this or I needed this or whatever else they would listen to me. Um, and I think that that really helped to know that I had a judge who stood behind me in what mm-hmm. I wanted. I, I really love this question because definitely a lot of times where I felt powerless. <laughs> and so I, I love the reflection on when did I feel empowered? When did we feel empowered? Um, When I first was placed into foster care, I had no hope or very little, maybe out of 100%, 2%, if that, um, about the outcomes of my life, any of those things. And I eventually was connected with a therapist and um, she really allowed a space for me to just recount my entire life experiences, um, including pretty much each and every trauma that I experienced up until that time. So I was like 16. And that was very empowering for me because it was, these were things that were just kind of like floating around in my head and like, my God, did that happen? You know, all those things. And to actually be able to verbalize it and um, to have someone after I said all of that to look at me and say, you're still like, worthy of continuing in your life you still have a whole life ahead of you you're only 16 um you can go to college like whatever your dreams are you can do them that was extremely empowering to me um probably the first thing that really started getting me like okay like I'm gonna live past 18 maybe you know (laughs) Like all these other different thoughts started going and and like, okay, I can really do this as well as my G oh, my therapist, Dr. Regina Gavin Williams. And then um, uh, as well as my guardian at Lightum, uh, Liza Weidel. Um, and she really advocated a lot, really, really hard for me on so many different things, um, including me to be able to stay in, Uh, the high school that I was in and to finish out with my class. It took me a while to be able to make friends because I was just really not trying to talk to people about my life. Um, And so to be able to finally do that and then uh, the system being like, well, we can move you and, you know, right on my senior year, that was very devastating. Um, And so she made sure that I was going to be able to graduate with my class. And I did. And The last thing that I want to share as far as being empowered is um, with the Hope Center at Pullen in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And um, I was mute when I got placed into care and right before then. And so for several months, I didn't speak. I just wrote um, notes. Um, And uh, there was a lot of reasons for that. Just the way that trauma showed up for me I just didn't see the point in talking anymore I was like my voice doesn't matter I don't matter um but the Hope Center at Poland um 
gave me an opportunity to uh, write my poet my poetry and actually be able to share it and put it in a book. And so the poem was titled um, A Life in Silence and just recounting different experiences that I had in poverty and um, the trauma, some of the traumas that I experienced. And that made me feel empowered because after sharing it, even though I was like shaking and crying and about to fall out and faint um, from stage fright, it made me like understand that I was capable of doing these different things and that people cared. Thank you for sharing that. And as you were speaking, I think it came very clear that between um, you and Alex, what made you all feel empowered was just your voice being heard, listened to. And it reminded me of, like I would say I felt empowered in care in a similar situation of just feeling heard. Like I was getting ready. I just turned 18, got kicked out of one placement into a new one. And, you know, that 18 area is kind of scary because you like, I don't know what's about to happen next. Let me figure this out. And so I'm getting kicked out of one placement. I'm like, okay, I'm in a new placement. Like, what is about to happen? Like, what is my life about to look like? And I remember, you know, being a junior in high school and I had done everything right to direct my path towards college. But now my path was interrupted because I'm in a new place. And I remember one, not feeling safe. Like I would be like, oh, I got a track meet. I did not have a track meet. I just would go to my friend's house and come back late. And it got really bad to the point where like one night, um, the my foster mom, I came in late because she said after 10 p.m., nothing's open, but y'all know the last legs. And so I'm like, girl, I'm not on that. But like I'm 18, I should be able to enjoy. And this time I came back a little too late, like 15 minutes late. And so I, I walked in the house and I'm like, cool, I got through the front door. I just need to get to the room next. So in my head, I'm like, couple more steps. Here she come in this robe. If y'all know me, when I get nervous, I start laughing and nothing is funny. I just don't know how to respond in the moment. And I just remember her looking at me and was like, uh, why would you disrespect my house? And I'm like, ma'am, I'm not trying to, but I'm giggling. And I'm like, this is not the time to be laughing, Tasha. Like, get it together. And so long story short, me and her kind of had a tussle at the door. And I remember her looking at me saying, I'm not scared of you. And I'm just like, girl, why would I want you to be scared of me? But then again, I realized here I am as a big black girl. Like, I don't need you to be scared of me. But what really got me was she was like, I'm about to, she opened the door. and was like, I hope you can run. You about to see how sneaky I can really be. And I'm like, I ain't running nowhere. And so I knocked on this random door and I swear to y'all, can I make this up? And I asked the man like, hey, can I use your phone to call the police? Cause my uh, foster mom is little, doing a little too much. And he like, no, she wouldn't do that. And so in that moment, I realized like, you're really on your own. And so I made it across like this little ditch type of thing and my friend and mom came and picked me up but in that moment I was like wow like I really have to take up for myself advocate for myself and I remember going to school and they told me about a guardian and litem I never known that I had one of those a casa any of that and um 
what really got me was, do y'all know, I called the supervisor of the supervisor. If she didn't answer, I called the other supervisor. When I found I had to cost, I kept calling them to the point where they was like, you were literally doing too much. But I felt empowered because in that moment, I knew I was not saying like taking no for an answer. I was going to get the help that I need. And I ended up did getting like a different placement and finally the guardian I'm like really helped me to like one not sign out of care he listened to my concerns um and it just made a world of difference and definitely made me feel empowered just having somebody to listen and say hey like this is what I need like I want to go to college like just it, it made a difference so I echo what you all had spoke of is about you know somebody to hear you and listen to you helps make you feel empowered and care. Yeah, I definitely echo that as well. Um, I definitely felt empowered the first time when I was able to finally like go and speak to the judge and tell them like what I wanted to do with my life, where I saw myself going. It was being able to go to those court hearings, which is why it's so important to allow young people to attend their permanency hearings um, so they can speak for themselves. Like it's one thing to have your guardian at litem speak for you, but and to also have your caseworker speak for you. But I really think it's powerful and it means something when it's coming from you because it's your experience. And that's what I tell young people all the time. And that's what I started telling my, my caseworkers and anybody that was working for me at the end of the day, like you get to go home to your family, to your kids, to your husband, whoever you with. Um, you get to see your parents whenever you want to on holidays. I don't get to do that. Um, so at the end, at the end of the day, like you don't have to live the life that I live. Um, I have to live this life. And so I should be the one to be able to make the decisions as to what is going to happen in my life. Um, not you. And quite frankly, I don't know what you're saying in the courtroom. So <laughs> I need to be there. So, um, <laughs> so I would definitely say that was the first time. And then the second time is, or when I really started to feel empowered is when I got involved into youth advocacy and being a part of, um, youth advisory boards. And child, when I tell y'all the worst and best thing they could have did for foster youth in New Jersey is to let us know what, to how to search policy <laughs> and read it. Um, <laughs> because yes, um, I learned what it meant to uh, go up the chain. And if your caseworker is not answering the phone, um, you could call their supervisor. And if you can't get in touch with the supervisor, you call their supervisor. Um, <laughs> I learned what that meant. Um, because, and, and it's, and I don't mean it in like a rude way or anything like that. But at the, like I said before, like at the end of the day, we're the ones that have to live this life. And if I'm not getting what I need and I vowed to myself after I left foster homes, I would never be in a place where I no longer get what I need. Like y'all are like, y'all are going to give me what I need because you are the, the people that are my quote unquote guardians. And so if my parent was here, they would give me what I need and nurture me and take care of me. But so you are the state and you're going to be my guardian. So you're going to make, I'm going to make sure that I have what I need. 
And so, you know, and I'm going to also teach young people to make sure they get what they need as well. Um, and so being a part of those uh, youth advisory boards um, and youth councils and learning um, how to advocate for yourself um, and then teaching how to advocate for others um, who can't speak for themselves um, or aren't in a place to speak for themselves and changing policy um, and stuff like that is really where I started to feel empowered um, and really wanted to help other young people feel empowered because nothing is nothing is stronger than your, your voice um, and speaking up for yourself. So... Yeah, I feel like, uh, Casey, I probably should have grew up in foster care with you because um, <laughs> I went to Jersey because um, you know, I grew up in Boston. And, um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, growing up, I didn't, I honestly didn't feel empowered. I felt, um, I actually felt really disempowered. And um, I know that I come, I come, you know, as it's interesting, like when you grow older and you begin to see, you know, a lot of the characteristics of, you know, your parents within you. And those are things that I cherish now because, you know, they both were, you know, my, I feel like my mom was the one that was doing a lot of the advocacy, advocacy, but she was not always doing it in the way that was always beneficial because, you know, one of my placements got uh, sabotaged because, you know, she was, I think that one of the things that she felt was that she um, felt like this foster parent was, you know, making all these decisions and she didn't really get to have a say. Whereas my foster mother was like, you know, I don't understand, you know, if she was, if she was being a parent, why, you know, why are you all not with her? And so now as an adult, I see that a lot of my advocacy efforts and a lot of the way that the ways that I've uh, felt empowered was actually uh, through my mom. And it didn't happen until I was older, though. And I think it was um, more so when I learned that I wasn't alone, that growing up in foster care, I wasn't really growing up with other people that had grown up in foster care. So I thought I was alone. And so when I um, got accepted into the Congressional Coalition on Adoption Institute and was surrounded by amazing other individuals who grew up in foster care, that was my first experience and first time uh, being and shown a platform where I recognize that I could use my voice to advocate for change. And so the biggest and best, best thing that they could have done uh, for us was allowing us to, you know, research and write policy reports about things that we wanted to change in foster care. And so I focused uh, on, you know, trauma-informed training for caregivers because I was like, you know, there's no way that you know, um, these foster parents, how could they not be trained in trauma when the fact of us leaving our homes is a traumatic experience within itself? So how are they not being trained? And then when we enter into care, we typically experience more trauma. And then when we exit care, we have to deal with that trauma. And so for me, being among other young people who um, had a voice and showed me that my experiences uh, that I wasn't alone, I said, okay, wow, like, you know, uh, I'm definitely going to be empowered. I would also say that uh, a sense of empowerment also came from my little sister. And the thing about it is, is that um, when you think about the dynamics, um, and, you know, people say, oh, yeah, you know, Monty, you're, you're, you know, you're confident, you're all of these things. But in reality, growing up, you know, I was like, I was the middle child, but my sister, who was younger than I, uh, she was someone who was really bossy. 
She was like a know-it-all. She was stubborn. So, and my brother, he was somebody who was just, you know, he was like angry and, and he was also bossy and all sorts of things. And so I sort of kind of fell in line. And so I was in a lot of ways, like the, the little sister. And so I didn't really speak much because in a lot of ways they spoke for me. I was the one who was sneaky. So I knew how to do things. So, Hey, we need some food. I'm gonna go to the store and steal some food and I'll come back. And you know, cause the, the, uh, what do you call it? The beauty of innocence. You know, I looked innocent. So nobody would suspect that I'm going to the store stealing stuff. So I could do that and get away with it and be sneaky. And so we all sort of learned how to, you know, tune into our own skills in that way. And it's so, I guess in that way, that is empowering, you know, cause you're, you know, you're surviving in that way. But I think for me, in all honesty, like my sense of empowerment uh, came, I, I feel like it was brewing um, as a kid. And even though when I was in high school, you know, I was always, I was often speaking up for other people and not necessarily for myself. And so I remember my high school teacher, no, my high school principal said, you know, Amani, I remember when you were a high school student and you, you know, you didn't let, you, you were always, always about fairness and you wanted things to be fair. You know, now I know it's about equity, but at that time it was like, you know, I don't understand why, you know, this is happening and that's not happening, but it was often for uh, someone else and not necessarily for myself. And so I'm at a place now, right, where having to sort of sift through and work through all of my trauma, I'm now at a place where I am redefining what is a sense of empowerment mean for me. And what does my sense of empowerment mean for me outside of my experiences of someone who grew up in care? And I think that's the hardest thing that I'm learning right now. And even who am I outside of my experiences? And I know that those things can't be separated, but those are the things that I feel that are a sense of empowerment for me. And being able to hear all of you all speak, like I said, that sense of validation, it's like, dang, like it's also bringing me back to, you know, when I was in care and, um, you know, brings up all kinds of memories. And so I'm really enjoying being able to sort of share and talk with you all about these experiences. Because again, our sense of empowerment comes from each other because we recognize that we're not alone and that the experiences that we had, even though we experienced those maybe in silos that together, you know, we're not alone. And so that's for me, um, is a empowerment in itself. And definitely thank you for sharing that, um, that connectedness and, um, just community can go a long way. And I know like previous to coming on today's live, we talked about protective factors. A lot of times we talk about risk, risk factors and, you know, these negative outcomes, but, you know, we talked about what are some protective factors can, that can help, um, aid more positive outcomes for black girls. And I really believe it's that connected, connective. Can I talk today? Being connected. Cause like I said, um, when, once I got older, I never really interacted with other black girls who had experienced care. And so once I started getting into spaces like this and being able to connect, it really helped shape my outcome. Like I can't, say that I would be in this position if I hadn't met like other um, women who have experienced care or just mentors who knew what I was dealing with. And that really was that protective factor that has shaped my outcome. And I think the other, I, I think the other aspect that we have to bring to the table too, <clears throat> is like this sort, this uh, sort of uh, narrative that's also been spun for black women that we've had to be strong 
you know, so we've been in situations where we've grown up with, I'm sure, with strong caregivers. And as Black women having to carry that has, is all, it's, it's hard, you know, because sometimes you don't always feel strong. But like you said, being in community with all of you all, like I feel, like I said, I don't feel like I have to carry the weight of the world on my shoulders alone because I know that I have four other powerful sisters and more you know, out there that are also carrying this work and we're trying to do it together. And there are times where we're not strong and there are times where we are not um, feeling okay. And, you know, how do we also um, sort of allow that to also be shared in the space too? Because oftentimes we're not allowed to be that way. And and I, I would say that even for uh, Makaya Bryan and even for, I'm not sure if you remember a few years ago when that young black girl, um, when the police officer came into her classroom and like knocked her over and uh, was uh, tussling with her and, and she had just went into foster care that day and she had to be strong that day. And because she wasn't given the grace to be strong, to be, to not be strong, you know, I think that there were so many consequences that went with it. And so really wanting to highlight that in the space too is really important. Yeah. And I just, um, also want to highlight on the, on the, as we're on the topic of uh, protective factors is um, not only social cap, uh, sorry, not only social connections, but also um, social capital. Um, as uh, Tashe was talking about being in the different spaces with mentors and other black women to uplift other black women and put them into spaces where they can be, the, be themselves, but also catapult who they are as professionals as well. Um, you know, one of the things that we don't, uh, when it, like Tashe, I did not have, like, although I was in, most of my foster homes were with Black uh, women, I just felt like I was not empowered like I should have been. I was not in the spaces um, where I had mentors growing up until I got into my adulthood, well, after 18. Um, it, when I got into adulthood, um, you know, but I feel like I would have benefited from from that when I was younger um, in my foster homes, being able to go to different like support groups or um, different um, just activities with other black girls to understand like what it's that I'm not here alone, like you said, Imani. And I really didn't feel that until I was placed in uh, residential programs and in group homes where I was just like, oh, so I'm not the only one in foster care. Although I knew that, um, but I just wasn't able to like see that. Um, and like being like being able, I actually was very successful when I went into group homes. Um, whereas when I was in foster homes, I was always getting kicked out of them because I just felt like nobody understood what I was going through. Um, but when I was in group homes, like, you know, I had that sense of community um, and people to talk to about what I was going through and share experiences. And then it, you know, went up a level when I started to get involved on different national opportunities and was like, oh, there are a lot of people that are in foster care across the United States. Like, wow. Like, um, I just did like, it, it was just like shocking to me. Like, oh my gosh, like this just, just doesn't just happen in New Jersey. It happens all over. Um, so yeah, just being able to see that, um, and then also being put in different spaces. But, but I do believe that if young black girls in foster care are able to see us 
see this platform that we have right here and other platforms, um, it would create a sense of community for them and an empowerment for them, for them to be able to see like, oh, I could be like them. I don't have to be like, my story is not the end all be all and where I'm sitting at right now in life is not where, is not does not determine my destiny. Does anybody else want to share? I want to kind of be cognizant of time as we just came up on the, the hour. I personally just loved everything that you all said. <clears throat> I don't know. My voice is going away. But <laughs> I loved everything that you all said. And I just I, I just agree a thousand percent, you know, community, um, holding spaces to heal, going back within yourself and uh, challenging the way that you see yourself in your trauma and, um, you know, really asking those questions, who am I outside of my trauma and not just the trauma of foster care, but as, as a black, you know, as a black girl, who, who am I, what, what does that really mean, um, in my spaces, in professional arenas, in personal relationships, am I carrying on too much? Am I continuously putting myself in situations where I have to be strong? because I'm just used to it, you know, those things are extremely important. And I think um, that's part of the work that I'm also doing and uncovering um, as we speak. <laughs> I love everything everyone said, and I'm so glad we decided to do this. And I hope any young black girl who's watching in foster care however you identify, know that this space is for you. Um, it is by people who look like you, for you, for it to be healing, for it to be educational, for you to learn how to advocate for yourself. So we, I'll, I'll just speak on behalf of all of us. I, I know that they're glad we're here too, to help young black girls because we could have used a space like this when we were younger. Yeah, I just wanna say that um, it's been helpful to, uh, just want to shout out even the people in the comments who've been supporting and cheer us, cheering us on through this process. I think that, you know, we all were nervous before we started this and, um, you know, we did some deep breathing and, you know, we did some of that cool meditation and all that good stuff, <laughs> box breathing to try it out. But I think, um, <laughs> I think ultimately, um, you know, I just want people to also know that they're not alone. And um, even though you may feel alone, it's okay. Um, but it's to also to know that uh, there's community here, people that um, want to support you, that do love you and are here for you. And that even though you may be experiencing some really difficult, challenging things right now, that you have a community of supportive sisters here that uh, want to walk alongside you. And so I just want to thank everyone um, who, who showed up and, um, who also sees this as being a benefit for them and their communities, please take this back to your communities and to uh, just sort of um, share this with other uh, black girls and uh, also those who uh, may not identify, but know that this place is a safe space for you. Yes, I just want to echo that as well. Thank you, everyone. I see your comments. Uh, we all see your comments. So we want to say thank you for encouraging us and pushing us to all of you who have been following us um, as well. If you aren't following us, you can follow us on social media. Um, we are on 
all of them, I believe. Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> We, li- we did not, not see the comments. I got Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We aren't on LinkedIn yet, but we'll be on there soon. <laughs> um, and you can follow us at the at sign B-L-K-G-R-L um, Diaries FC. Um, and that is our handle, hashtag as well. Um, but we want to thank everyone for definitely um, tuning in tonight. Um, and I think Tasha is going to let us know what is next for the podcast. And also thank you, Casey, for being our wonderful social media manager. I kind of want to shout out some of these names here because I didn't even yes. know there was a comment over here. I was on the private chat. Um, <laughs> I was like, what comments? Like, what's happening? Lupe, Welcome to the comments. Uh, Ritdico, Nay, Emily, Vivian, Remy, Tet Tet, yeah. uh, Rit, what, Reach, Lydia, Exal, um, <laughs> Byron, Nema, Shannon, uh, Candice, Cher, yeah, Jalisa. What yeah. would you say? I said especially Nima was giving some shout outs. Shout yeah, out to Kangas. That was yes. my yes. Thank you so much. Yes. I see some of my line sisters on here. Shout Uh-oh. out to <laughs> um, But okay. also before we go, I told everyone that we wanted to do a quick um just like an ode to, to black girls, word of encouragement. And I hope y'all don't mind if I leave the, one of the reasons that this is called Diaries of a Black Girl in Foster Care is because I never really had much within the foster care system, but whatever placement I was placed in, I always had like a memory bag and I always mm-hmm. kept like a diary. And sometimes I didn't necessarily write words in it. And I think that was just a reflection of feeling over, overwhelmed. But um, I did write a poem and I definitely want to take this time to dedicate it to black girls and just say, like, I see you. You are valued in this space and that if nobody else like gives you that affirmation that you need, like you can definitely get that from this space. And so this poem is actually called I See You. I see you hiding but you can't hide who you really are. I see you going places. I see you being somebody. I see you living your life and meeting new faces. I see you. I see you being scared, what people might think. I see you getting uh, over your fears. I see you. And this is so crazy to me because I actually wrote this in 2008. Um, in the midst of going through care. And it's like, it's it's always good to look back and reflect um, on things. But if any black girl who is experiencing uh, foster care and not just black girls, like if you identify as non-binary trans, like anybody, like if you're really going through, going through foster care and I know it could be hard, like we see you, we hear like uh, what's her name? Nene Leek say, I see you. <laughs> we see each other. So um, I definitely wanted to dedicate that today. And then there was a comment on here that asked if this would be shared later. So yes, we will be, the recording will be on our Facebook, on our YouTube page. Um, it will be shared out on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. Um, so give us a, a couple days and we will make sure to, to share that out to people because we want to make sure you can share it with anyone in your network. Yeah. It's something to look. Oh, good. I was going to say 
um, something to look forward to is um, next month we'll be here again on the 16th doing another podcast. Um, and we'll be doing some stuff in April. So just look for it on our social medias. We'll have like the topics and everything you need to know about what's coming up. And so as we end, I'm going to let everybody do their final remarks and um, say anything you want to say. I'm giving it to y'all. Oh, okay. I thought I'm on. I, I, yeah, I don't know why I was on. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Um, I yeah, I just want wanted to. Say to... That... Oh, my. <laughs> you, you good. You good, sis. Let me go, go on mute. No, no, I was just going to quickly say that um, just uh, you are the prize and just remember that. And um, I love all of you all. And I'm glad that we got to do this together. Aww. <laughs> yes, I definitely, I definitely um, love you too and love you all. And I'm just really excited for what's to come in the next couple of episodes. Um, Tashe, thank you for sharing that beautiful poem. Um I think for so long, I definitely did not feel seen. And um, it's it's just amazing how somehow we became, you know, at one point in our lives, you feel like, you know, I'm not going to make it. I don't know what's going to happen. Like, what's what's next? What's going on? And somehow we fast forwarded here and, you know, we're authors and business owners and, you know, getting our master's degree, all these things. Um, and we're seen you know, if not by anyone else, by each other. And so um, that means a lot. Um, I just want to say that I'm grateful for everyone who showed up today from the co-host to the people in the chats, to the people who are going to rewatch this um, and just know that we all see you here and we all are a resource to you. And we would love to hear, well, I would love to hear what other topics besides the ones we have lined up that you may want to hear about. And just from the bottom of my heart, like this has been a really healing experience for the last hour and a half. Like just to sit here and have a kiki with, with my girls and just to be able to like be our authentic selves um, has been amazing. So I am so glad, Tasha, that you brought this up, this idea, and you allowed me to push you to do this because this has been amazing heart clap if you were ever a uh, staff at foster club or no foster club but a little heart clap <laughs> um, yeah that was an fyi for me yep same <laughs> so i just as we close out here i just want to highlight the melanin magic that is on on the screen right now um i'm just in awe every time all of us get on a zoom call together i'm just like and even as i was like making our social media uh stuff i'm just like yes the melanin magic that is on this flyer right now um, <laughs> So I do want to highlight that um, all of these beautiful queens, it's been amazing to be in this space with you all. Thank you, Sashe, for, you know, even creating um, this idea and having this platform. Um, just want to thank all of our followers and all of the people that are in the comments to the people that are watching it now or watching it later. Um, please comment below when you are watching it, if you are watching it later. Um, and again, if you have any questions 
or anything like that, you can feel free to email us or just message us on our social media. Someone will get back to you and interested again, so like Alex said, to see what uh, topics you all want to talk about as we continue on with this podcast. And to all the Black girls that are in foster care that are watching today, as Tasha said, you are seen and you are heard and you are not alone. And so we want to thank everyone for joining us tonight and we will see you all again soon. Bye guys. <laughs>